Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. I am also the host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV. We're currently in our off-season, but you can find clips and full episodes of that show at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. And we'll have new episodes for you coming this summer. But in the meantime, hey, take a listen to this podcast. On this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people from the world of journalism, scholarship, uh, policy, all different, like, smart people who know fascinating stuff that you don't know that you probably want to learn about. That's what we talk about on this show. Today's guest is Dr. Josh Sharfstein. He's a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at John Hopkins, and he was also the principal deputy commissioner of the FDA. On our show, he appeared and talked about herbal supplements, why the FDA has very little power to regulate them, and what a big problem that is. But he also does a lot of fascinating work in the area of public health nationally. He's doing really cool stuff all across the country, so we're going to talk about supplements. We're going to talk about all those other things. I think you guys are really going to be fascinated. We are so excited to have Josh join Join us from Baltimore today, so let's get to the interview. Take it away, me. Uh, well, Josh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was really fun uh, having you on set, especially because you brought your you brought your son, son along to set, which was really uh, fun for me. Oh, he loved the show. He loved meeting everyone, and he thought I was cool for about one minute, and then he was criticizing my performance after that. <laughs> See, but that was that was really a nice moment for me because I was like, man, if I can make one dad look cool for his teenage son, that's like uh, that, that's at least one good deed we did from the episode. Oh, yeah, it was priceless. If the question is, would you take your kid across the country for one minute of looking cool? The answer is definitely yes. <laughs> it made me. It made me feel bad. It made me feel bad for uh, for how how much crap I gave my dad, who was also an academic, for being uncool. I was like picturing myself in that in that position, uh, and and so. Uh, uh, I try to make up for it next time I called him on the phone. Um, well, we had you on the show to talk about supplements. Uh, you you used to work at the FDA. Can you can, let's start out there? Uh, how did you uh, end up at the at the FDA, and and uh, what what sort of did, work did you do there? Sure. Well, I'm a pediatrician, and I had worked uh, for a member of Congress named Henry Waxman, and I worked a little bit then on the issue of dietary supplements, actually, but a whole bunch of other issues related to the FDA. After I did that, I was the health commissioner for Baltimore City, and I was very involved in a whole bunch of different issues, including uh, calling attention to the fact that cough and cold medicines for little kids really didn't work, and we did a petition, and a whole bunch of them came off the market. Um, And then uh, President Obama uh, was elected, and I was on the transition team for FDA and wound up as the principal Mm. deputy commissioner uh, of the agency and then got into all kinds of different issues, including dietary supplements. What is the principal deputy commissioner? Is that just like you're somewhere on the org chart and you're overseeing various things? Well, I started out as the acting commissioner. So I was like the commissioner until uh, Dr. Hamburg was confirmed. And the principal deputy is the num- was the number two position at the time. So I worked very closely with Dr. Hamburg and, you know, I was involved in drugs, devices, tobacco, food, really the whole gamut of things, cosmetics. You name it. And it sounds like the stuff you were working on was a lot of the same sort of topics we talk about on our show where, I mean, you said, yeah, cough and cold medicines that that simply don't work. That sounds like uh, right up my alley, like my ears perked up when you said that. It sounds like that's the sort of suite of things that you work on. I I worked on a whole bunch of things. I, I don't know if you remember the caffeinated alcoholic beverages like Four loco. 
Um, oh, I, yes. So I was very involved in those products where they mix the alcohol and the caffeine coming off the market. In fact, I teach um, at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I will ask the students whether they know about these products, and then I'll say, you're looking at someone who was quite involved in getting them off the market, and sort of a combination <laughs> of uh, cheers and groans at that point. You're, that's incredible. I, I didn't know that you're the guy you helped get four loco off the market. That was such a that was such a big deal. I mean, I was in my I was in my 20s in New York when that happened. And that was like, you know, that was like a bomb went off in the Lower East Side when when uh, four loco when they had to change their formula. I mean, it's still around, but it's right. A, it's a shadow of its former self. No one cares about four loco anymore. Well, at my, my parting gift at FDA, which I have up here in my wall is, well, first of all, they gave me a can of four loco, which is um, looking at right now. And then also they gave me a little news article that said that excess four loco was converted to, to I think, uh, ethanol uh, for auto fuel. They turned four loco into car fuel? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm just <laughs> looking here. Good... It says uh, four loco to be converted to auto fuel. A recycling plant in Abington, Virginia has begun turning truckloads of four loco and other alcohol-laced energy drinks into ethanol and other products after federal authorities cracked down on the sale of such beverages last year. So I have that kind of framed on my wall. It's a pretty good sign you shouldn't be drinking it if it's that easily turned into car fuel. Well, it was a terrible product because it basically created a state of wide-awake drunk, and so kids didn't realize quite how drunk they were, really, and they got into all kinds of problems, car accidents, assaults, poisonings, deaths. You know, it was a disaster. And a number of states jumped out, but the FDA jumped out pretty quickly also when we saw the harm. We heard from a number of state attorneys general, and we put together the science. We basically viewed the caffeine as an additive, and there wasn't evidence that it was safe to add uh, caffeine like that to, to these products. God, well, I mean, yeah, it's it's funny because in my world, it was with Four Loco, it was very much like everyone was like, okay, yeah, we know we shouldn't, like, we know this is dangerous, but it was also like, you know, it was such it was such potent party fuel. I don't think I ever actually had any, but it was definitely all over the place. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you know, for uh, it, someone someone in their mid twenties like you, you know, you maybe you've had a little bit of exposure to alcohol by that point. But for kids who are in college, there were stories of kids going to parties and they'd be given one for each hand and told they have to drink both before they can do anything else at the party, you know? And I think they had like the alcohol of four beers and the caffeine of five diet Pepsis in each one. So it was was, was a crazy amount of alcohol and caffeine. So let's talk about, let's talk about supplements um, because uh, this is an area where, well, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, I think we think of the FDA or, or government regulation of uh, of food or, you know, stuff we put on our mouths as being pretty strong. You know, I think I certainly grew up thinking like, oh, yeah, every, you know, the government's keeping an eye on everything and uh, and the FDA specifically. And, um, you know, I often, yeah, you hear about drug companies and, and et cetera, complaining that there's, you know, uh, that the FDA has too much oversight or whatever. Um, but But supplements seem to be an area where, uh, at least speaking to you, that you characterized FDA as being like incredibly weak and having having very little oversight. Can you expand on that? Sure. It's an interesting history. But let me say one thing. I, I do think that the drug industry, um, for the most part, supports FDA regulation. I think that mm. there are some uh, sort of political ideologies these days that don't support it. But it's not so much the drug industry. I think that for the most part, they understand how much the industry has benefited and how important it is to have that referee out there. So I just wanted to right. point that out. So moving to supplements, um, absolutely, it's a very different standard than for drugs. And it's a long history there. In fact, the, um, there's a great article by the FDA historian that goes through how many different ways FDA has tried to think about vitamins and other supplements over the last century and how um, basically it's uh, never been successful in in creating a full regulatory framework. And I think the reason for that is that for drugs, people really want to know whether the government thinks the drugs work. And um, there's such an incredible value to orienting the pharmaceutical industry to drugs that actually work. Whereas for supplements, only about one in four supplement users really care, according to surveys, what the government thinks of whether the products work. They know they work. That's why they're taking them. They don't need to hear from the government. So it's a different model. The, the American population has always viewed 
supplements and vitamins in a different category than drugs. Wait, so how do we even – and you know, now, as we're talking about this, suddenly the question is, is arising in my mind. How do you even distinguish between supplements and drugs? What, what, how do you, you – know, what, what do you base those two categories on when you say this is a drug, this is a supplement? So um, good question. So there, there are a couple things. First of all, the supplements are really kind of regulated as foods. They should be things that are naturally occurring, whereas drugs are synthesized. Um, but okay. the second thing is that drugs are marketed to prevent or treat – illness. Um, They're disease-related, whereas the supplements are supposed to just be supporting the healthy function of the body. So um, if you have a product that is sort of a natural substance that you're not claiming is going to cure cancer, cure diabetes, then you're allowed to market that as a supplement. Um, That's a bit of an oversimplification, but there are different types of products. So vitamins, your echinacea, ginkgo, those sorts of things. And so that's actually a choice that the it's sort of based on the intention of the of the company making the substance then because I've seen on you, you know I'm familiar with this phrase you see on supplements that like this is not uh, intended to cure any disease as per the FDA or something like that um, there's there's like this little disclaimer and I always kind of assumed that that was like they were forced to put that on there but it sounds like what you're saying is that by putting that little phrase on there that's how they say we are classifying ourselves as a supplement we're not trying to cure a disease we're just trying to promote the healthy function of the body and then they're sort of putting themselves into a a lesser regulated framework by doing that? In, or? in part, but there are also requirements on what they're actually selling. So you couldn't make Valium and then put that disclaimer on and get away with it, it because okay. it um, still has to be kind of a food and naturally occurring in some respects. So it, it's both. Um, you have to have certain elements relate to the actual product, and then uh, you can't the way that it's marketed. And actually, you know, there's evidence that that people don't really pay attention to that disclaimer. So you're absolutely right, what you said before. People think that the products are more regulated than they actually are. And, you know, just to give you a sense of the difference, if we're going to, you and I want to create a drug company, then we'd have to uh, file an application with the FDA just to say that we want to even study that drug in one human being, you know, and, and then every step is very carefully monitored by FDA. If we wanted to create a supplement company, we don't even have to tell the FDA that we're doing it. We can even market the products, and the FDA has no idea that we're doing it. And I remember for the show that you you looked into marketing your own product and just saw how easy it was, but I think it was the network lawyers who didn't want you to do it. But it wasn't the FDA yes. lawyers who told you that it was illegal because it's not. I was about to say that for the show, as a stunt, we wanted to, uh, you know, develop and market our own supplement. And we talked to various uh, labs that would uh, or, you know, there are various ways to do it. And we were going to, you know, you could you can uh, put your own label on an existing supplement, but you could also create your own proprietary blend. And we found a company that, you know, would let us make, I think, you know, I think we want to make a run of, you know, 500 or 1,000 yeah. small run of, you know, bottles of uh, our own supplement. And we were saying, okay, we'll put in ginseng and, you know, whatever the most the most innocuous things are. And we'll, we'll dictate what the supplement is, you know. And, uh, yeah, the only thing that stopped us was the network's lawyers said you can't do this because you know even even though it's all this stuff that's in, innocuous if anyone gets sick you know we'll be sued and you'll be sued and and so you can't do this but yeah nobody uh, <laughs> those were the only people that stopped us yeah if we had not had that layer of network or if we were just you know two bozos out of the back of a van with enough money to uh, uh, pay for the bottles and for the mixing we could have just done it there was there was absolutely nothing stopping us from from making and marketing our own supplement even though we have absolutely no training <laughs> there's no we're, we're the, you know I'm the last person you should be you should be buying a, a supplement from yeah and so so what are the problems with that well one is FDA doesn't know that you're doing it so if there's any issue they you know everything is reactive nothing is proactive and the kinds of issues that arise number one a lot of these products wind up spiked with illicit pharmaceuticals. So they're actually not legally marketed as dietary supplements because they have pharmaceuticals in them. And the FDA has warned hundreds of companies about uh, the fact that they really have medicines for erectile dysfunction or weight loss and actual medicines in the product. And so those products are marketed without FDA even knowing. And then what happens is FDA is scrambling after people have been hurt to announce a recall. And I used to be the person who was called um, at 11 o'clock at night. We really need to do 
this recall notice. And I would say, well, what's the recall notice? And it would be, you know, we're recalling, you know, uh, Super Slim or Magic Coffee. Magic Coffee had the same active ingredient, if I recall correctly, as Viagra. So it wasn't magic. Really? You know, you know and then there were all kinds of names that um, were quite graphic, you know, that FDA would be putting press releases out about, and, and hundreds of them. And so that, that's one major problem. The second problem is even after they come off the market, they still are available for sale in different places. It's very hard to get rid of them. Uh, third problem is that there are legal claims. People uh, make claims. They get carried away. They say this is great for diabetes. This is great for um, Ebola. During the Ebola, they'll say whatever. Um, then you have the problem that there are manufacturing issues. The companies, in theory, have to abide by manufacturing standards, but FDA only conducts about 400 inspections a year and finds problems in two-thirds of them. There are more than 15,000 manufacturers out there. So, and, and then there's a problem, like you talked about on the show, that a lot of times the ingredients that are promised aren't the ones in there, and they're extra ingredients, including allergens. So the market is really dysfunctional. People are getting injured. And I think that there's a path forward. And I actually think there are some companies and trade associations that would support a path forward. I think the beginning of wisdom is to think that uh, we're to recognize we're not going to be able to regulate these as drugs. That's just not where the American people are, are are coming from on these. They don't really care whether the FDA thinks they work, but they do care whether the FDA thinks they're safe. And I think the premise of regulation should be about safety. Uh, companies should have to register these products with the FDA. FDA should have more authority over safety, be able to uh, require certain uh, testing to be done to make sure that the actual ingredients are in the product and uh, be able to take things off the market um, as evidence emerges on safety a lot faster than they're able to now. And I think some of that is possible. I'm not a complete pessimist about what could be uh, accomplished. There's just such a disagreement on whether these things work. You know, there are a number of scientists yeah. who say, you know, we just don't see any evidence, but the people who take them are sure that they work. If you just set that dispute aside and say, let's concentrate on safety, I think there's a chance for some progress. But th this is exactly what we were talking about earlier. This is the unrefereed game right now because you have these, you know, companies putting out, uh, you know, there are five products next to each other that all make the same claim, but some of them. You know, I mean, I assume these are just like straight up bad guys who are who are putting up, putting in, you know, knowingly putting in uh, or in some cases uh, pharmaceuticals into their supplements in order to produce an effect that in order to produce the effect that they claim right. under false pretenses. Then there are others that are just pure placebo. And then there are others that don't even have uh, the horny goat weed or whatever it is in them. It's It's actually just like sawdust and oregano to exaggerate a little bit. Um, but since no one's no one's scoring it, then there's no way for the consumer to tell the difference. Right, and I so I think that people would support a, a stronger framework um, for regulation. I don't think in general supplement consumers would support drug-like regulation of supplements, but I don't think that's really necessary for a, at least a whole lot of progress. You know, um, the the there's the German uh, statesman Otto von Bismarck who said that uh, <laughs> politics is the art of the second best. And the, uh, I was writing an article on dietary supplements with a student, and I said, boy, it would be great if, if he took dietary supplements because then we could make the case that he, um, you know, we could really use his aphorism that we need to find a compromise around safety that could really help a lot of people. And the student went and he looked. He said, I don't think he's taking dietary supplements. And I like... I had in my mind that I bet he has, because a lot of people did at that time. And so uh, I looked up all these biographies, and sure enough, he used herbal supplements as part of a regimen to lose 40 pounds. So that <laughs> became the end of our article, that like we need to, you know, in, in his memory, you know, think about a compromise on policy that protects the market. Maybe isn't what happens to drugs, but at least isn't as crazy and unregulated and dangerous, frankly, as, as what exists right now. Do, do you think that, you know, supplements are an important, you know, part of the of the health system? And I, and I just mean on a, you know, on a personal level or, or are we talking about a segment where, 
you know, we talk about on our show uh, in our first year about how vitamin C and the idea that we should be taking vitamin supplements, you know, came from Linus Pauling going nuts in like the 50s and 60s busy claimed they, they cured cancer and they don't. You know, and they don't cure, you know, vitamin C doesn't cure colds or anything else. It, but it's the kind of thing, well, well, if you take it and it works for you as a placebo and it alleviates your cold symptoms and, you know, uh, et cetera, then it's like there's no harm in taking additional vitamin C. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you don't actually have to, uh, you know, there, there isn't really a strong reason to take it, you know, unless I suppose you're on a long sea voyage and you don't have any fruit with you. Do most supplements fall into that category? Are we talking about like sort of a paramedical field where, you know, these are uh, these are people who who are sort of like, you know, seeking placebos or or weird effects, and we just need to make sure they're not harmed. Or is there a real need in society for you know safe and effective uh, supplements? Well, I think there are definitely a few uses that are recognized in in medicine: iron for iron deficiency anemia, vitamin D for certain conditions, calcium. Um, there are certainly uh, some areas where it's really part of what mainstream medicine would think is important for treatment. I think the idea of supplementing vitamins for different purposes really hasn't been accepted. You know, if you go back to 1962, FDA proposed a statement that read, vitamins and minerals are supplied in abundant amounts by the foods we eat. Except for persons with special medical needs, there is no scientific basis for recommending routine use of dietary supplements. Um, That was never implemented. But that, I think, has sort of been the general view of medicine uh, since since then for more than 50 years. And so, you know, I think that, I, well, I wouldn't, you know, just recommend generally taking vitamins for, um, you know, most people. I, I do think that the way the politics has played out, people really like taking them. And we're talking about a yeah. $25 billion industry in this country and, and tens of millions of people at least who are taking them. And that that's where the... Uh, Politics is the art of the possible, uh, the art of the next best quote comes in. You know, if we, uh, you know, it's not the purpose of government to just do everything that it thinks is going to be the absolute safest. You know, we talked about the purpose of regulation. It's not to do everything. It's to be reasonable and to do things that Mm -hmm. are going to uh, protect the public and put everyone in a better position. But, you know, you've got to be reasonable. And I think... My conclusion on this is that we shouldn't be thinking of risk versus benefit for supplements just like we do for drugs. We should be thinking more like um, safety but access. So we should be thinking of a different framework. And that totally makes sense because it avoids the dispute over, you know, why people take these things or how effective they are and, and lets you focus on just making sure that no one is no one is harmed, which I think that seems to be our, our general sort of folk idea for what government is for. It's to make sure that, like, people aren't hurt most <laughs> above all <laughs> um, and keep people safe. Yeah. Well, first, do no harm. I think that I think that's true. And, uh, you know, but getting there is tricky because there certainly are people who would like to see these regulated as drugs. I think that a lot more can be done short of that. And it's it's there are a lot of people, you know, who are being injured that we can help. Well, I'm here talking to Dr. Josh Sharfstein. We will be back in just a moment. So please stick around. I'm Barbara Gray. I'm Brandy Posey. And I'm Tess Barker. We're Lady to Lady. Do you want to sleep over in your ears? Is that a friend in your pocket or are you just podcast to see me? We're a portable hangout you can bring to the gym, on the subway, or on an oil rig. Seriously, we have listeners who do that. Show with us while we get high with Margaret Cho. Talk showgirls with Katya from Drag Race. And hear Broadway star Anthony Rapp sing Hamilton. I am not throwing away my shot. (laughs) I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. That's Lady to Lady. Can you keep a secret? Neither can we. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Dr. Josh Sharfstein, who is a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So I know you've been doing, uh, uh, since you left FDA, you've been doing some really other interesting work in uh, the you know, field of health policy. What, you know, what else have you been working on? So um, I, after I left FDA, I went to the state of Maryland and uh, worked on a really interesting project relating to how hospitals are paid. And in Maryland, hospitals are paid differently than every other state now in the country. Most hospitals are paid kind of like hotels, which is to say they need to have patients admitted 
for them to be paid. And an empty hospital means a hospital that's losing money, and a full hospital means a hospital that's making money. In Maryland, we kind of flipped the script, and the hospitals uh, get a budget in advance at the beginning of the year. And if they can prevent illness, they make they keep the difference, basically. Again, a little bit of an huh. oversimplification. But what that does is it incentivizes them to really think about where illness can be prevented and to collaborate with all kinds of organizations in their communities to keep people healthy. And very, very interesting work is coming out of that. School health, better nutrition, better primary care, much greater access to addiction treatment and mental health um, uh, treatment. And so uh, it's pretty interesting. And uh, Pennsylvania is just announced it's going to um, use a similar model. Or we call it global budgets. The hospital gets a global budget, and they're going to try to sign up 30 rural hospitals over the next three years. So, you know, I've been... Uh, since I've left the state, I've been writing about this potential innovation in payment and speaking about it and thinking about how it could be applied in different places. But it's a fundamental shift. You know, it, I, this is, I think, a great topic for Adam Ruin's Everything episode, you know, <laughs> because, you know, most people think that it's just great when you have the world's fanciest hospital and all kinds of services. And, you know, um, I, I have a slide where I compare the slogans for hospitals with the slogans for hotels and ask whether the audience can tell the difference and they cannot tell the difference. Mm. And that's because they, you know, they see themselves as just great places to be and they want more people to come. But that's really not good for the health of the community. And when yeah, you, there's a big difference between a, between a hotel and a hospital where, I mean, uh, a hotel is – if, if you have to spend time in a hospital, things aren't going well for you. You don't actually want to spend time there. <laughs> exactly. And so we – so I had this really fascinating visit to a hospital in Maryland that had been uh, one of our pilot hospitals with a global budget. And I walked into this huge uh, atrium and nobody was there. I got really disoriented because you think of a very bustling hospital. And I walk right back out and I was just finally – guy comes bounding over to me. He's the CEO of the hospital. Big smile on his face. I'm thinking, you know, if, if I'm that guy and this this is my hospital, I'm probably brushing up my LinkedIn profile. You know, like, this isn't good. They're, the hospital is barely half full. And he just said, look, we, we have a budget. We're putting all that budget, a huge amount of that budget, into prevention. We've got a clinic for anyone in the county with diabetes, heart failure, asthma, nutritionist, nurse, pharmacist. We're all working together to keep those patients out of the hospital. And then he said, you know, he's closed wards of the hospital because he doesn't need the beds anymore, and he's shifted the staff to these prevention services. And then he said, look, we, we used to have a motto like, you know, we love to have you here. And now our unofficial motto is we hope to never see you again. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, I mean, it, it it's a fascinating flip of the incentive because, uh, you know, if if the hospital is making money uh, by the bed, you know, whenever the bed is full, then, you know, I mean, if you want to be at your most cynical, you know, and I'm sure some people do say this way, it's like, ah, oh, they want to keep you sick. So you got to stay here and keep paying them, you know, and and I don't think anyone is really that ghoulish, but it, it is, you know, it, it, fair that, you know, to say, OK, I, I think the incentive could line up that way. But, yeah, if they have a budget and then they retain more of the budget, if people are not in the hospital, then their goal is to. Uh, keep people out of it because they're they save money when they don't uh, when they don't have to provide the care. Although, would that ever give them like uh, an incentive to turn people away and say, uh, you know, hey, oh, you're fine. We're going to discharge you a day early because we save money. You know, when you're not in the bed, uh, even if you're already healthy, or oh, well, sorry, that's a totally you know, even fair. if you're not healthy, well, we'll right. you know, take a wheelchair and an IV bag or. Um, totally fair question. So uh, the way the system works is it's very focused on rewarding hospitals that are able to reduce preventable admissions. But if if hospitals are driving patients to other places and their shifts, then they actually the next year get their budget cut. So Mm. the incentives are aligned to really focus on prevention rather than pushing patients to other places. And and we've seen just some really great things happening in Maryland, uh, all kinds of collaborations. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. We had a dispute between the school system and the health department in one of our counties, and they were arguing over the school nursing program, and all of a sudden, all the school nurses got fired. So that landed on my desk. Everyone's running around. And then out of the blue, I get called by the hospital CEO there, and he says, we're going to hire them all. And I said, 
why are you going to hire the school nurses? You're a hospital. We've never seen that before. And he said, well, we were looking at our data and we saw that all these kids are coming to the hospital with asthma and we know asthma is preventable and it's costing us a lot under our global budget. So we'll run the school health program at break even. We'll really focus on asthma and we'll save ourselves a lot of money on the back end. And that's exactly what they did by the way. And then you pause for a second, like, why is every other hospital in the country paid more when kids are struggling to breathe? You know, what, what, huh. why, why do we have an incentive system that, I mean, and you're right, nobody wants kids to have asthma, but if you only pay when the kids are really sick and you're paying thousands and thousands for the admission, then where are the resources to put into community-based programs that actually keep kids healthy in school, not at risk right. of dying, and all those different things. And when you switch the incentives, if you do it right, it's got to be managed well. You have the ability to not only have lower costs, but really have better health. That's fascinating. I mean, we have a, uh, you know, uh, in our upcoming season, uh, without spoiling anything, we are doing uh, an episode on uh, on hospitals, and, and which uh, is quite a bit of it is about hospital billing, and, and it... It seems like, uh, and you know why hospital prices are so high, et cetera. And it seems like a, a strangely unexamined part of our healthcare issue. I mean, uh, you know, obviously right now as we speak, there are healthcare bills working their way through Congress, and it always seems like it's so much about insurance and about uh, how you know people are going to pay their premiums and whether the insurance will cover them and you know how it's it's always about who's going to pay the bill how how is the bill going to be paid where will the money for the bill come from uh you know uh, in terms of the bill you get when you leave the hospital but it seems like a huge part of our healthcare problem is the uh the mechanisms by which the uh, the hospitals themselves are paid and how they determine what their prices are and how they receive money for services. And there are so many parts of that. Like, uh, you know, really, it's like a problem on the hospital side, on the on the side of the actual healthcare care provider uh, that that seems to be causing the issue. And those are people we often are loath to criticize. No one no one really wants to say, oh, the hospital is, you know, perhaps overcharging or is not uh, uh, their billing is not done in a way that's conducive to health um, because they don't want to, you know, impugn. People want to have faith in their health care providers and not uh, uh, doubt them. But it seems like that's a, a, the hugest unexamined part of the conversation nationally. Well, you know, we pay so much more than other countries for health care, and our health outcomes yeah. aren't that good. We're 30th or 31st in the world for life expectancy. We have the first decline since 1993 or so, and we're projected to slip even further, despite being number one for what we're spending. And, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't – the way I think about it is not that the hospitals are – per se doing anything wrong, but they're trapped in a terrible incentive system. They don't have the ability to take the enormous amounts of resources that exist in healthcare and push them towards prevention and rebalance the healthcare system because if they did that, they'd be um, you know, making it harder for them to to make money. When when I was the um health commissioner of Baltimore, a project that we did uh, was in line at some, you know, for bagels inside the emergency operations center during some storm. And the fire chief said to me, we've got uh, these patients who keep calling 911. Could you help me? You know, they're, they're slowing down our response time. So we sent out uh, visitors um, to their houses. And the first one was like a 93-year-old woman who literally called 911 basically every day. And she was lonely. She wow. was perfectly healthy for a 93-year-old. And she thought the <laughs> EMTs were cute. She loved seeing them, you know, and they, she called every day. So we found her like a sufficiently cute uh, home visiting replacement. And, you know, the, the people, the EMTs were disappointed, but she was perfectly, perfectly fine. And we published a paper that this, you know, they weren't all exactly like that, but um, – We've, we, we were able to do these different interventions and save money in the EMS side alone, let alone the fact that a whole bunch of people were getting transported and all the costs that were associated with the ER visit or the admission. And we had this meeting in, in City Hall with all of the hospital ER directors. And I had a medical student working with me on the analysis, and we presented it. We were saving money. We were making people healthier. We were helping the EMS system. And she said something like, well, now the hospitals can all put in money so that we can extend this across the city to hundreds of patients. And it was a truly emperor has no clothes type of moment because by doing so, we'd be taking money from all the hospitals. They had no money to put into a system like this, even if they wanted to. 
It was just a completely wrong set of incentives. Now, fast forward, the hospitals are on global budgets. They're investing in that very program, some of them. And so they have the ability to to benefit when their patients are healthier and don't need unnecessary care. It's just hard to believe how much um, hospitals benefit when patients get unnecessary care. And, and when you're stuck in that system, even if you're a hospital executive that wants to do something different, you can't. You can't do it. And so creating a different set of incentives allows some great people within the hospitals to do things that really they've always wanted to do. And you talk to the hospital CEOs in Maryland, that's what they say. They say, we're realizing why we went into this field. We are making our community healthier. And so it's very interesting to me, having worked you know, in the hospital, but also on the public health side, to think, what can we do to better align all the money we put into healthcare with better health outcomes and have the healthcare system and the people who work in it really feel good about what they're doing. That's uh, it's also uh, you know good to hear that at least you know and again when we have such a divisive national conversation about healthcare to to hear that the uh, states are able to you know uh, be experimental and and uh, see what works and and maybe chart a way forward because that's I mean it's a, it's an un, an unideological solution it sounds like you know a lot of what's going on in health at the state level is really below the political radar screen. I mean, there's so much political, obviously, debate, and there's a lot at stake with insurance coverage. When you get to how healthcare is organized, you have red and blue states doing very interesting things. Arkansas is really a pioneer for bundle payments. Tennessee, Utah has been doing uh, special payments for uh, primary care doctors who keep their patients healthy. There's a lot of innovation. And, you know, credit does go to the Affordable Care Act for facilitating that, but it is done in a way that's pretty far below the radar screen of, you know, the, all the disputes over insurance. And, you know, my view is it is really important for people to have insurance. If you lose insurance, you lose the ability for any of these things really to work well. But once you have insurance and good insurance coverage, then that's not enough. You really need to rethink the way that healthcare is paid for so that we get what we want, what we need out of that huge investment. We get better health. So uh, you've also uh, been involved in trying to cut the prices of hepatitis C drugs in Louisiana, and, and I'm told that's a very interesting story. Can you can you get into that a little bit? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the advantages of working uh, in a great university is you get to work on different projects, and there's a very important public health issue uh, that relates to drug prices. And obviously it's it's in the news quite a bit. Drug prices are rising much faster than health care costs or any uh, right. overall goods. And then there are particular areas where it's really causing public health problem. And one of those is hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is an infectious disease. It's transmissible by blood contact. It uh, affects hundreds of thousands of Americans, and it causes pain, liver failure, uh, can lead to liver the need for liver transplant or death. And it is just a horrible disease. And for a long time, we had toxic medications that really didn't work. And in the last few years, we've got these great medications now that uh, can cure hepatitis C 99% of the time uh, with very few serious side effects. So it's just a huge breakthrough. So, you know, it's a tremendous um, credit to the researchers uh, who created this as well as the companies that brought it to market. The challenge is that the products were priced very high, initially in the $80,000 per patient come down with with discounts probably down to about the $20,000 per patient for a course of treatment uh, level and well, what it, a bargain yeah it 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 it's a great thing for the patient now the challenge is those prices were set with the idea that you know probably not that many people would be able to afford it there's been a senate investigation into the drug pricing and Basically, when the companies were looking at where to set the cost, they were th- understanding that if they set it pretty high, there wouldn't be that many people who would get it, but it would be good for their revenues, and that's how they decided to set it. And the result of that is very few people, relatively, who have the condition are actually getting treated. Now, when they created a polio vaccine, I think one of the founders of the polio vaccine uh, famously said, well, can you patent the sun? When asked whether he was going to patent it, he said, this is really for the country to, to save the nation from the polio. That's not exactly the approach on the hepatitis C drugs. No, and so the, the companies have made a huge amount of money off uh, hepatitis C. They quadrupled or tripled or something like that. They're investing billions of dollars. and But it's left states with 
most of the people with hepatitis C untreated. Um, a huge number of people are in prison, untreated. A lot of people are uninsured, untreated. People in on Medicaid, some places they're treating them. Other places they have very strict requirements, which aren't based in medicine. It's really just based in finances because the states cannot afford it. And in Louisiana, uh, Peter Bach, who is a, a doctor at Sloan Kettering in New York, for uh, did a project with the health secretary of Louisiana showing that just to treat more Medicaid patients, it would cost the state $750 million a year. And he put up a website where it's like, well, how many teachers do you want to fire? You know, what, what are you going to do uh, for $750 million a year at current prices? It's unaffordable. Uh, this is also a drug that will cure people. I mean, you want you want people to be able to have access to it. This is a a cure. This is a serious curable disease that we're we're able to treat effectively, but but we simply can't afford. That's the situation. And so, people who have insurance that covers it, they can afford it. But most people with the disease, the majority of people with disease, cannot afford the treatment. And so, and, and nor did the companies ever expect them to afford the treatment when they priced the drug. So, it's a very unfortunate situation. And so, the Secretary of Health in Louisiana has been thinking about what can be done uh, for people in Louisiana. And we've been um, exploring different alternatives. One of them is to use a law that's over a century old, which would allow the government to use the patent for the medication and uh, treat people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get treated and compensate the patent holder at a reasonable amount. That reasonable amount is not the price they developed for you know, the Blue Cross Blue Shield patient. It's a reasonable amount based on um, what the government can afford and what uh, is reasonable given the uh, the cost of production and a few other factors. So it would be way less expensive for the, for, for the government to do that. Now, um, that law has to be invoked by the federal government. It's a law that used to be used for pharmaceuticals in the 1950s and 60s, and it's a law that's still used all the time for the government to use a patent for certain things. Um, so the idea is that uh, perhaps the government could um, utilize that law for uh, hepatitis C drug. So with the, that discussion is really in the middle of happening. There was a newspaper article about some work that we've done at the request of the Louisiana Health Secretary, uh, Dr. Rebecca Gee, who's a tremendous public health leader. And, you know, that that's ongoing. I mean, there, there, there are a whole series of complex issues that have to be worked through. But in the, the bottom line is we, we have a problem, and how are we going to solve it? It almost sounds like it's sort of an eminent domain for patents is what is what you're describing. Like it's it's that the if the government shows that there's a, an important sort of public public use, then then uh, the government is able to make use of the patent for the public benefit. Is that what's up or that's precisely what it is. And um, there's a law. There's a whole series of court cases that established the government's right to do that. It was used for pharmaceuticals in the 1950s and 60s. But just because that law exists doesn't mean it should be used in every case. So part of what we're doing is thinking through what's the rationale in this case. We want to make sure that the companies uh, are adequately and appropriately you know, rewarded for their investment because we don't want to remove the incentive to develop great cures. On the other hand, we need people to get treated. So somewhere in there is a policy path for using this authority to really make a difference. And we're talking about a yeah. contagious disease. So it is just really important for uh, – and there's such a clear role for government to assure that um, an outbreak is contained. Right. I mean, I, I have here, and tell me this number is wrong, but but that in Louisiana, there's 35,000 uninsured Medicaid-dependent res, uh, uh, residents with hepatitis C, and that, that's what will cost the, uh, you know, $764 million. But, like, that's that, – that, that, there's an incredible public good in, in curing that many people of a, of a contagious disease uh, if, you're, if you're able to. Um, uh, obviously, you can't do it at that cost if you're Louisiana, but uh, that's, that's something that – but I yeah, would imagine everyone in Louisiana would say they have an interest in having be done. Well, you know, we're 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 in the middle of just discussing that. Even the the National Academy of, of Medicine um, recently had a committee to look at what it would take to eliminate hepatitis C in the United States, eliminate essentially this horrible disease. Mm. And the biggest barrier. Um, not the only barrier, but the biggest barrier is really the price. And they recommended that the government try to purchase a license from one of the companies, have the companies bid against each other. And per, and the government could purchase a license and then use it to, you know, once you've got the license, then you can um, find a company that will make the drug and uh, then you're able to treat as many people as you can. And so basically you have the most important 
independent scientific body in the United States, the National Academy of Sciences, saying the way drugs are priced today, we're stuck with hepatitis C. We have to shift to a completely different and unconventional way of thinking about drug pricing for us to be able to solve this public health problem. And so, you know, if that were to work, I think that would be great. If that doesn't work, I think a more, um, you know, a government patent use kind of uh, approach is probably what will be necessary. But, you know, hopefully what the, the National Academy recommended or something like it will be successful. That's so striking, though, because you compare to uh, uh, polio uh, and the and the discovery of of the vaccine for polio that that you know essentially uh, you you know I mean we all have know those stories of of you know these diseases that were that were wiped out or you know were were eliminated because uh, you know of of uh, vaccinations and and treatments for them you know we sort of see them oh they're way back in the rearview mirror people you know like polio is something I would use you know, as a comedy writer to say, okay, I'm going to make a funny joke about being in the past. You know right. what I mean? Um, like, oh, I've got polio. That's something an old timey person would say. Um, and yeah, that was like, uh, they have the cultural aura of, of, you know, like man going to moon, going to the moon. You know, we, we went to the moon, we cured polio. These are things that we did for the good of humanity. But yeah, the idea that that there are diseases now that we could cure, that we could eliminate in the same way, and the only barrier is one of price. That seems like we've come so far since those days. That uh, that uh, <laughs> you know, back back then, no one was saying, "Well, we we have the cure for polio, but you know, we need to be paid through the nose for it." Uh, right, or that we'd be satisfied. Striking. We'd be satisfied if only ten or fifteen percent of the people who need it would get it. I mean, that's just—it's impossible to imagine. But really, that is kind of what's been happening with hepatitis C treatment. It isn't, now I think price isn't the only barrier, but it is a huge barrier. And um, there are ways of getting around it. And so that's kind of the area of work that I'm I'm working on right now. I really can see a conflict there, though, between, you know, uh, philosophically, because it's such an odd category of product. You know, I mean, companies, uh, you know, the wonderful thing about capitalism is you have companies that, that without anybody telling them to, you know, spring up and, and do development and try to create new things for all of us to enjoy. But um, in the case of drug companies, they create something that sometimes they create one that's so great that we all believe, well, there's an ethical requirement now that people have access to it because it's so important, this thing that you've invented. And, and the suffering it can alleviate is so great that... Uh, you know, we kind of just want to come in and take it not, like as a society. You know, how dare you charge money for this? You should make it free for the world. But then it, from a, from a company, from a, you know, uh, a corporation's point of view, well, then that's exactly the kind of product you want to you don't want to create because suddenly people are going to come rest it out of your hands and and distribute it freely because you've accidentally created something that has all this ethical value placed on it. I, I really see the uh, there, there's such an odd push and pull there that doesn't exist with with hardly any other product under the sun. I mean, you know, the high price of, uh, I don't know, iPhones isn't a public health or a moral issue, but the high price of drugs is, and that that makes it such a strange industry. Um, Well, I think you're putting your finger on something very important. And, you know, that's why uh, I think it's very important for us to be thoughtful in approaching this. Um, And just because we can use a patent under the law doesn't mean we should, or that because we could use a patent in a certain way, we should use it in that way. There really needs to be a way to balance these things and to say it's really important for companies to make a a good return on these investments. At the same time, it's just not acceptable if all these people who are suffering um, and society as a whole that's suffering from contagious disease doesn't, doesn't get help. In this case, with hepatitis C, what we're talking about is there are people who aren't getting treated now. The, cover, the, the company's not making any money on them, you know, the people in prison, yeah. very few people in prison. So if you had a much uh, more discounted price because mm-hmm. of the use of the patent, for example, the company would get money, they'd be getting more money than today. So you can think about setting up an approach to using it. You're not going to use it to reduce the cost maybe for everyone on Blue Cross Blue Shield, but you might use it for people in prisons because they're never going to get it otherwise. And so how it's used, and a more general point is, I think people have been afraid to use some of these tools because they can't imagine drawing any kind of lines about what would be the right way to use it. And one of the things that we're working on as well there are ways that this could be bad to use. You know, you don't want to take away the incentive to make great products. We have to figure out a way to 
you know, have a policy that allows for people to get access to drugs and doesn't remove the incentive. And I think it's possible. I think for hepatitis C, it's pretty clear that the companies were pricing the drugs knowing people wouldn't get it. And if we can create a way to have a lower price for people who wouldn't otherwise get it, then it's sort of a win-win and the company actually may wind up with more revenue. Yeah, and that's that's the essence of good policy, right? I mean, that's why I enjoy talking to, to if I may label you as such, uh, policy wonks such as yourself, because it's always about like, okay, we understand that there's, you know, these ideologies and these incentives and this and that, but like our goal is to really just look at the facts on the ground and try to find out, okay, how do we get as close to possible as making every, everyone happy? How do we save a couple lives without removing that, that incentive? And, and it should be possible to, to do both at the same time, or at least get a little bit, get a little bit closer to that if we, if we put the right incentives in place, um, which is, uh, I, I don't know, it's an approach I relate to. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, policy is a bit of a, you know, an entire field that maybe isn't in the highest esteem at the moment, but it's extremely important. In the end, people really want regulation that works. There's good regulation and bad regulation. They want good regulation. There's, um, you know, all kinds of of policies, and it really matters whether they're effective or not. And, and, you know, there are policy schools. We have a policy program. There are all kinds of um, ways for government and the private sector to work together that really make a difference. And, you know, that's, I, I do find that fun. I don't know whether I would totally embrace the term policy wonk because it might lower my standing with my son. But I would, <laughs> I would say that I really do enjoy policy and it's very rewarding to be involved in an effort that at the end of the day produces results. Um, and I've been involved in efforts, you know, that, like I said before, help reduce infant mortality or as a drug overdose or all kinds of different things. It's extremely rewarding. That's great, and I'm sure it is. But I do have to say, if your goal is to impress your son, I still think you went into the wrong field. I think you should have been, you know, a video game play tester or like I don't know, a motorcycle <laughs> guy or something. I don't know what you know, or a test pilot. I I think uh, as as rewarding as that work is, you know, 15 year olds are cruel, man. So <laughs> I, I, I think that if I were like video game tester for the coolest games, he would say um, the way I hold the controller is very embarrassing. <laughs> But that, oh, let me I'm tell you, so as sorry. a pediatrician, I can say that is developmentally appropriate. Uh, well, as a as a former as a former teenage boy myself, let me apologize for for me and all my kind. Uh, uh, and i I hope as I hope as he gets a little older, he begins to appreciate the work you do. And thank you so much for for coming on the show to talk to us about this. It's really been awesome, Josh. Okay, it's my pleasure. Thank you again to Josh for coming on the show, and thanks to you folks for listening. That is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast, for this bi-week. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I don't care what it is. If it's got a subscribe button, please subscribe to us. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. That would help us out a lot. Once again, Adam Ruins Everything is currently in the off-season, but you can find clips and full episodes at true tv write this down true tv.com slash adam ruins everything and the watch true tv app until then we'll see you in two weeks thanks for listening bye-bye maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned listener supported